pollination of country was changing so fast that map makers couldn't keep up with what was happening. And the world really didn't change, it just kind of regrouped, is basically what happened. And one thing that Daniel chapter 2 teaches us is that the kingdoms of this world are passing away. But the kingdom of Christ is the only hope we have for an eternal and successful world rule. And when that kingdom comes, it's going to be far, far different than other kingdoms the world has ever seen. So we want to take a minute, friends, and bring ourselves up to speed here before we get to the last verse. We're going to be looking tonight at verses 44 to 49. Now last week we saw, again, that after King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream uh, that kept reoccurring and troubled him, he was deeply disturbed, and he was unable to get any restful sleep. And so in verse 2 of chapter 2, he summons the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans, which were the astrologers, and to tell them, uh, for them to tell him his dream. Now they wanted him, of course, to tell them the dream first, and then they would interpret for him, but he so after repeated attempts in verses 10 and 11, we see uh, to get the king to tell them the dream first, the astrologers, who seem to be the speakers for the group, admit defeat. We can't do it. There's no way it's humanly possible. Then in verses 12 and 13, the king then says, well, that's fine. So he issues a decree to kill every black man uh, in his court, and, uh, which would include Daniel and his friends who just finished graduating. How about that? It was a short-lived uh, lifespan career. In verse 16, then, though, instead of killing Daniel, he actually gets a pass when Ariok, the king's henchman, if you will, uh, the king's bodyguard, and Daniel, again, had just already has a great reputation. And he's able to, instead of being killed, uh, get a pass to go see the king. Then in verses 17 and 18, Daniel, of course, before he does that, he responds to the crisis with prayer. Again, we're going to see prayer a lot with Daniel because now, again, Introducing it again for us. And then in verses 19 to 23, in the middle of this intensive prayer meeting, God reveals the dream to Daniel. And then in verses 26 to 30, Daniel then reiterates what the wise men had already told the king. He comes around and tells the king, see, they were right. There's not a wise man or a conjurer or a magician or a diviner who were able to make this dream known to the king. None of them. Only it was impossible for them. And he said it was it's impossible for me as well. It's only possible for God to reveal the dream and its meaning to Daniel. He calls him the God in heaven of whom the wise men spoke was Daniel's God. And he would then know to the king the dream and its meaning. So then in verses 32 and 33, Daniel describes the king's dream as a giant statue. And it's made of four different metals. It has a head of gold. It has a chest of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, and legs of iron. And then the feet and toes of are iron mixed with clay. The head is gold. Again, the rest of the arms are silver. Note two facts about the metals in this statue as we kind of work our way down. There is a progressive deterioration in the value. We start off as gold and we end up with clay. I think it was used as iron. 
Uh, and uh, so we see it deteriorating in value, if you will, from top to bottom. By the same token, there's a progressive increase in strength. Gold is very valuable. Iron is not. Right? Iron is stronger. So it gets stronger as it heads down uh, the statue, but it decreases in value. However, as strong as it is in the legs, when it gets down to the bottom end there, where the, the toes are, where the iron and mixed are together, it's uh, inherently unstable. And as a matter of fact, that's going to be an issue in this dream. Then in verse 36, uh, again, this is a, just a recap for you. Daniel tells the king, we will tell of its interpretation. Again, we're not sure who the we is there. Daniel and the king. And uh, some people think it's Daniel and his three friends who came along. They were there at the prayer meeting as well. And uh, something well, probably revealed to them as well. Daniel's just a small group. Others think, other people think Dan, Daniel is referring to himself and God, which reveals the dream. We will reveal the dream. God is not Daniel as the mouthpiece. Uh, or it could be all the above. Everybody could be there when he says we. It doesn't have to just be uh, two people. Then in verse 38, he tells him, and he says, Now I'm going to give you the interpretation of what this statue means, what this dream means. So Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, You, you king, are the head of gold. Now, why gold? Again, historians tell us that the city dripped with gold. Matter of fact, uh, one historian who was there about 90 years after the Fall of Babylon, and recorded it. We actually have this. Uh, described Babylon 90 years after the fall as the walls and the buildings were dripping with gold. This is almost 100 years after the fall of Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar had a real fondness for gold, and we see that in Isaiah, actually, also talking about Nebuchadnezzar and his fondness for gold. So it does all fit together. And Nebuchadnezzar wanted to build a golden throne in the midst of a golden city. As a matter of fact, that's what Babylon was known as. Golden city. So much gold on all the walls and panels. Uh, but Nebuchadnezzar, this Babylon kingdom, I should say, only lasted 70 years. 70 years, which is exactly how long God had, uh, had prescribed for Israel's chastening. Right? 70 years. So... That's how long it lasted. Nebuchadnezzar lasted about 43 of those 70 years. Then in verse 39, the second kingdom is represented. Again, this is what we covered last week. The king, this kingdom refers to the Medo-Persian kingdom. And it is represented by silver. It has the breast and the arms, which again implies a twofold division of the kingdom. And of course, we have two here. We have the Medes and the Persians. And uh, why silver? That word silver in Arabic is the same word for money. Right? Silver in Arabic it means the same as money. So, uh, so the identification of the Medo-Persian Empire would be money or silver, and history bears this out because the Medes uh, understood how to tax people. They had a vast system of taxation. So every ruler of the Medes and the Perks taxed their people and taxed the countries they took over almost to them. You guys read in the writing about them. It was a heavy, heavy tax. Uh, they literally filled their coffers with tons and tons of silver. As a matter of fact, that's how they got the money to defeat Babylon in the first place, was by filling their coffers with silver before they took over. Uh, that empire lasted about 
200 years until 330 BC, and that's when he comes as the third king, verse 39, and that's the kingdom of bronze. We've got a bronze belly of thighs, and that is the Greek empire led by Alexander the Great. Why two thighs? Well, Alexander actually had four generals that he uh, divided his kingdom between, but only two of them really actually made it. The four didn't last very long. It really became down to two main powerful kingdoms. There was the empire in Syria, called the Seleucid dynasty, and uh, the Syria that was a part of that dynasty is much bigger than the Syria of the country we have today. And then the other empire was the empire of Egypt, and it was ran by the Ptolemies. And they had uh, Egypt, all of North Africa was controlled by the Ptolemies. Now, why bronze? History again lets us know that the Greek um, army heavily used bronze. You would see a Grecian soldier, uh, they would have had uh, brass on his, uh, he would have had uh, a helmet of brass. He would have a body, a breastplate of brass, he would have carried a shield of brass, and believe it or not, he had a sword made out of brass. So uh, he was uh, all dressed up head to toe in brass. As a matter of fact, brass became a sign and a symbol of all the Greek conquest and the Greek empire. So gold, because Nebuchadnezzar was preoccupied with gold, silver, because the Medes and the Persians were preoccupied with money for silver, bronze, because it symbolized the power and the forces of Alexander the Great. And now the kingdoms are still separated then when we come down to the fourth kingdom when we see that in verse 40. And those are the legs of iron. And that represents who? Romans. Right? That's the Roman Empire. Note also that Rome has two legs. Rome, uh, if you didn't know this, really existed in two states. You have Western civilization, right? And the Eastern uh, civilization of Rome in Constantinople. Alliance. Whatever this kind of tone is a weak alliance. 
that's, uh, as we know, when a stone strikes it and causes the statue to fall, it hits it with those 10 toes, and the whole statue comes down. Right? That's exactly what we saw in verse 34. So the meaning of the stone is the key to understanding the clay feet and the meaning of the king's dream. That's what we want to look at tonight in our time remaining here as we close out chapter 2. But before we do, how about we pray? Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, again for the opportunity to gather together here tonight. Lord, I thank you for all these mistakes. Lord, I take the time here to grab the Bible and come out here for an hour there again to worship, open up the truth, and to learn more about you. But again, as we said this morning, we don't want to just be hearers of the word. We want to be doers of the word. We want to apply this to ourselves and apply it to our lives and apply it to our lives. So let's look at Daniel chapter 2, verses 44 and 45. Okay. 44 and 45. And that's really the bulk of what we'll be looking at here tonight are those two verses still, but we will finish up at the end here. So, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. So, in your notes here, our first point here that I want you to see in your notes, point number one, the stone and its kingdom is not made by human hands. The stone and its kingdom is not made by human hands. Now, Daniel explains the stone in verse 44, right? The, the stone is representing kingdom, a kingdom that God will set up. And it's a kingdom of God that is established by Jesus Christ, the stone. Because Christ is the stone, and he's ushering in a kingdom as well. His kingdom. And throughout the Bible, Christ is described as the stone or the rock. I don't have time here tonight to get through all those references, but I think you know those. Uh, but let's, uh, let's just look at one here. You can keep your place in Daniel and turn to Matthew chapter 
described in verse 45, sorry, is cut out of the mountain without hands. Now that's pretty hard to do, isn't it? Cut out of stone without hands. Which indicates to us that this is a supernatural thing. Something going on here that's not a kingdom built like the other kingdom. There's something different about this kingdom. It is from God. And notice that it also crushes the iron. This is a very powerful kingdom as well. Now, I do want to take a second here and just kind of clear up some competing views that are very prevalent today. First, the church isn't going to conquer the world with the gospel. Okay? We're not going to conquer the world with the gospel. Well, we are to go out into the world and to preach the gospel and to make disciples. That's very good. We are to do all of that. But we're not going to bring about the kingdom by doing that. It's, it's not under our control to bring in and usher in this kingdom. This is not us that's doing it. We're not going to usher in a golden age and a millennial kingdom through the preaching of the gospel. But God, in his providence and wisdom, tells us that we are to go out. Right? We're to be preaching, we're to be teaching, we're to be making disciples. But the kingdom itself is in God's hands. God will usher exactly what he And the fact that the stones appearance to the train is sudden and violent makes it clear that this is not a prophecy about the Lord's first coming. Right? The Lord's first coming. This is a prophecy about the Lord's second coming. What is being described here is a future kingdom that God, not man, will establish. This kingdom is going to have divine origin. This kingdom will be sudden, whereas all the other kingdoms were built one on top of the other, right? And this for 70 years, they had you know, the Persians for 200, right? They had the Greeks for 200, and the Romans for 500. And yeah, this kingdom will be like that, sudden. It will not build one upon the other. It will be, it will come in quickly. So what we do know from Scripture, that the next thing in God's prophetic timeline is the rapture of the church. That's the next thing that is going to happen. And that's where God will remove all believers before the tribulation. And then at the end of the seven-year tribulation will be the second coming. And according to Revelation, all believers will return with Christ to set up his kingdom on this earth. We'll, we'll return with Christ when he establishes his millennium kingdom. And when Christ returns, Matthew 24 tells us that every eye will see him. Every eye will see him. This is his second coming. Not the rapture. The rapture, right, would be sound of the trumpet, right, flash of lightning, we'll meet the Lord where? In the, In the air, right? In the air. When Christ comes the second time, every eye This event here will be supernatural and sudden, but it will also be severe. Christ's first coming was not severe, right? He came to seek and save the lost. If he comes back for the second time, it will be sudden and it will be severe. He will be coming as a king and a conqueror and a judge. Now, let's look at our second point here. And that is, we saw from verses 44 and 45, the stone will smash all earthly kingdoms. Okay? Stone is going to smash all the earthly kingdoms. So the feet of clay and iron exist at this time in the, in the future.
future. They have not existed in history yet. Right? In other words, up until the point where that happens, that this will be the first time that this has happened. All of these other kingdoms are traced in ancient history, but this kingdom or this part of the last kingdom has not occurred yet. And again, it's connected to the Lord's second coming. And so this is the picture of a future kingdom, or better, I think, a revival of an ancient kingdom, which is the old Roman Empire. Remember, these ten toes are iron mixed with clay, and the iron represented Rome. So many believe that this is a revived Roman Empire. In fact, if you uh, read any of the books on end times, you'll see that a lot RRE, the revived Roman Empire. That's where it comes from. That's in Daniel chapter 2, uh, primarily, and then Daniel uh, chapter 7 as well, a little bit later. The kingdom will involve people and nations that make up the former empire, which is Rome, but the clay signifies that it will be a divided kingdom. Again, clay and iron don't mix. So this is the final form of the Roman Empire, or revived Roman Empire, and it'll be an alliance of rulers rather than one single empire. What is also clear is that the ten kingdom alliance will rise up in the future. Now, will it be the near future? Very possibly. We don't know. It may be the distant future, but it will happen. The kingdom will arise, and it will be hostile. John refers to this in Revelation 13. The feet have ten toes, and he describes the beast coming out of the sea with ten horns, and the horns have ten crowns. So, they are kings that are described as this beast that will be aligned with the Antichrist in the last days. Can you all crack them up here? Ten toes, Antichrist, last days, second coming. Now you may be asking, uh, how did you get the Antichrist out of chapter 2? I didn't, I've read it 10 times, 100 times, I've not seen the Antichrist here. Well, that's a fair question. The answer is I actually got it out of Daniel chapter 7, not Daniel chapter 2, which we'll get to someday, I promise. So, it, in Daniel chapter 7, contains a depiction of these four great world kingdoms in the form of four and so in a sense, I'm kind of reading ahead in Daniel, but I think it's justified since Daniel chapter 2 gives us the introduction to these four empires. Daniel chapter 7 gives us the rest of the story. And for that matter, Daniel chapter 8 and Daniel chapter 11 give us even more detail. Now according to Revelation chapter 17, verses 12 and 13, the Antichrist is going to lead a coalition of ten nations. these kings as opposing the Lamb. So they will oppose Christ, these kingdoms. They will oppose the gospel and they will persecute the people of God. So the ancient persecutions of the Roman Empire will actually be revived again. This revived Roman Empire. But it will be stopped because we know that Christ will defeat the forces of the Antichrist. We read that in Revelation 17. God will meet violence with violence when Christ returns. The stone will smash the feet of clay and crush this colossal statue. The time of the Gentiles will be brought to a sudden end. And when Christ returns, all earthly empires will be totally destroyed. 
Remember in that dream, not only did the stone smash the statue, but it also causes the pieces to be blown away, to be crushed, blown away by chaff in the wind. So Christ's coming will bring an end to everything built by the hand of man. It will be, if man built it, it's coming down in the last day. Every one of our monuments, every one of our idols, every stadium that we have, every Everything that we have built as such is a homage to our great humankind will be shattered and smashed and crushed and dispersed like the chaff of the wind. So the stone, which represents Christ coming back to earth to establish his kingdom, will smash the governments of mankind as they are allied together in the last days under the leadership of the person the Bible calls the Antichrist. And then after that, Jesus will set up his kingdom. God smashes the image, and then the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord, uh, Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, Psalm 72 says, all kings will bow down to him, all nations will serve him. So now let's look at our next point here, in verses 41-45. The new kingdom is universal and eternal. Okay? Universal and eternal. So Christ is going to conquer and he'll suddenly smash this world system and he'll replace it with a kingdom that is like those kingdoms but different. This is going to be perfect and righteous and he will reign for how long? Forever and ever. Right? For a thousand years in the millennial kingdom, but how long will he rule like forever? So it's not what many today describe as a spiritual reign of Christ or of Christ who's ruling in our hearts. Or ruling in the hearts of men. Yes, Christ is seated at the throne at the right hand of God the Father. Yes, he is indeed sovereign. And he is calling out a church that he is presently building. And he is ruling in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. But I want you to notice that this kingdom that Christ will build will be an earthly kingdom as well. And the four kingdoms of the statue were all earthly. They were all material, all of them. And those kingdoms were on the earth, and they had specific geographical boundaries, right, for each kingdom. The kingdom that will replace them will be like that, too. It's that the coming kingdom will be on the earth, but it will be boundless. Its boundaries will fill the entire earth. It will be spiritual, but not only that, it will be on the earth like the four kingdoms. What do I mean by that? I mean that kingdom will fill the entire earth. It'll be a real kingdom, not just a spiritual kingdom. Okay? There are many today that say, you know, the millennial kingdom isn't real. It's just a spiritual kingdom that if you have really over your hearts, it's not a literal thousand year real kingdom. But the Bible begs to differ. It is a real kingdom, just like the other kingdoms in the statue were real kingdoms. And they had very specific boundaries and the boundaries of this kingdom will be the entire earth. So if you want to say it has boundaries, I guess, it, yes, that's it. It has everything in the earth, everything on you. Uh, this kingdom, though, one other thing is it will be eternal. The other four kingdoms were all replaced. This kingdom will not be left for another people. It is universal, it is eternal. And so that's the meaning of this recurring dream. Okay? Just like he has walked us through. This is what it means. So Nebuchadnezzar had gone to bed the night before, 
wondering what would take place in the future and what would happen with this great, with this great empire. And Daniel tells us in verse 45, God has told you. He's revealed the future to you. And what it means is your kingdom isn't going to last. Nebuchadnezzar, only God can do it. So let's look at our last point, verses 46 to 49. The earthly kingdom, point number four, the earthly kingdom bows down to the sovereignty of the heavenly kingdom king. Remember what Nebuchadnezzar's title was? Kingdom king, or the guy that's holy, kingdom king. But here's the true kingdom. Here's the heavenly So Daniel tells him the dream, and interprets the dream for him. Let's look at that in verses 46 to 49. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel and gave orders to present to him an offering and fragrant incense. Okay, stop for just a second. The most powerful king in the world, the ruler of the known world at this time, is now on his face bowing down to an 18 or 19-year-old convert Jewish boy. I mean, just think about that for a second. I mean, that is kind of hard to grasp, isn't it? That would be like the leader of Iran bowing down to an 18 or 19-year-old Jewish boy right now and paying homage to Just think about today's world. The chances of us seeing that would be amazing. This is God at work. But think of the great courage also of Daniel just to tell him what the dream meant. Because he has to tell him, King, I know you just took over with your father. But your kingdom's not going to last. Only God's kingdom's going to last. I don't know if he probably got the money said it or he just, you know. But that took a lot of courage. Remember, he's a young man. He's 18, 19 years old here. <laughs> Very young. Great courage. And that kind of message is the kind of message that would anger a man like Nebuchadnezzar. When you get to chapter 3, well, you've already seen here in chapter 2 what happens when you anger King Nebuchadnezzar, right? <laughs> Wise men couldn't deliver, yet they got their head, right? Chapter 3, he won't bow down. What's the punishment? Fight. Throwing in the fight. And he's not a guy that messes around. He's not a guy you want to get angry. But Daniel just trusts in the Lord and shares with him the dream that God had given him. But notice here, Nebuchadnezzar isn't angry. He actually thanks him. And that's how the chapter ends. The king got off his throne, bowed down to Daniel then rewarded him. And then he confessed, surely your God is the God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. You see that? So he says, the king answers Daniel, verse 47, surely your God is a God of gods. Our God is the capitalized one, right? And the small small g gods are their gods. And the Lord, right, or a Lord of kings. In other words, the master, the sovereign ruler of kings. And a revealer of mysteries, since you have been able to reveal this mystery. So then, the, verse 48, the king promoted Daniel and he gave him many great gifts. And he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief per, uh, prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Prefect is like a governor. They call them princes or satraps then, but they basically had 
divided up into these many uh, areas, many kingdoms, states, and then they would have a state crown or a prince that falls mm -hmm. or a prefect here he has, who's basically in charge of everything in that. But notice which one Daniel has. In Babylon, he has the spot, the area, the province. So, um, so here we go. You may remember back in chapter one, the king thought of the God of Israel. Remember what he thought about? About the God of Israel, chapter one, verses one. He said this, uh, right? The third reign, Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem, seized it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. He brought the vessels into the treasury of his God, right? In his mind, the God of Israel was not as powerful as the God of Babylon, otherwise he wouldn't have won. Right? My God's are bigger than your God's kind of thing, is what he's thinking. But notice now, you know, he thinks that the God of Israel was a lesser God, as one defeated by his gods. And he didn't, and I seem to care a little bit about Daniel's God, uh, or to have cared a little, I should say about Daniel's God or about Daniel's convictions. But he is impressed only by Daniel's superior performance. Remember when they didn't eat the same when they accepted their gods and they were they outperformed everybody else. But now in light of these events in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar falls prostrate, acknowledging the superiority of God, the God of Israel, as the God of gods, the Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, it would be hard to read this and say, okay, I mean, he's come, he's not come as far uh, enough to be called a saint, okay? That's not, I wouldn't say that he's a saint, in fact, it's hard to believe that in chapter 3, right? But, so I would say that he is saved, but uh, he has come a long way in his understanding of who the God of Israel is. And as the chapter closes, we see that Nebuchadnezzar is a man of his word. Verses 48, right? 49. The king promoted Daniel, gave him many great gifts, as I read, and made him ruler of the whole province of Babylon, and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel then, notice verse 49, made request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon, while Daniel was at the king's court. So, uh, Daniel receives many gifts, just as Nebuchadnezzar had promised the wise men to make him an interpret the dream. He did, the man of his word, did do that. Um, and along with the gifts, Daniel receives a promotion. He's made the ruler of the entire province of Babylon and is placed in charge of all the wise men. That had to go over well, I'm sure. Here was something for the wise men of Babylon to ponder. Their gods had nearly got them killed. Daniel's God had saved their lives. So while Ariok attempted to use Daniel's God-given uh, gifts and abilities to remember to further his own position, I have found the man who heard the prayer. Notice what Daniel does. He takes his newly gained power and does what? Let me introduce you to my three friends over here, right? And make sure that they're included in this promotion of Now we don't have time to look into that, but to do a leadership study for what good leadership looks like. This is what recently promoted, and then 
they spoke to the king on their behalf and were appointed in charge of the whole province of Babylon. Now, my friends, what should we get from Daniel chapter 2? We've got this whole thing on the screen, you know, and now we're going to take, we're going to take side of it, we're going to come back to it later, yeah, right now. What should we be thinking? Well, here's what I want you to walk away with. We believe that Jesus Christ is coming back pre-millennium, right? Pre-before the millennial kingdom. The millennium is not going to make this world ready for the Lord's return. Instead, the Lord will establish his millennial kingdom himself. In other words, we don't usher in the millennial kingdom. God is important for you to know that what we believe because knowing what we believe, we should be preparing people for the rapture as Christ comes to take his people out of the world. And remember, we looked at this once when we were looking at the Warning passages here. There's no second chances after the rapture for those who have heard the gospel, embraced the gospel, right? Said they believe the gospel, part of this body, and then walked away. Remember, God will bring us to the delusion. Remember that? So when we come to the end of Daniel chapter 2, the question of what we must ask is. What is your relationship to the rock of salvation? What is your relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ? Because when the Lord returns, nothing else can matter in this world. That question is right That's the most important question we all have to answer. I believe in my heart of hearts that most of you, if not all of you, have answered that question already. Right? You're here on a Sunday night. But if you're not absolutely sure, you can answer that question. Now, in the Bible, right, Christ is called the stone that the builders rejected, and God has ordained that he will become the cornerstone of this universe. So where do you stand in relationship to him? One commentator wrote, you're either on the rock or under the rock. My brother, you know. He is either a rock of stumbling and a stone of offense to you, or he is your rock of salvation. So the most important question you have to ask yourself tonight is, what is your relationship with Christ? So let me ask you this as well. Where do those you care about the most stand in their relationship? If we know that is revealed to us in his prophetic time, What's next for the rapture? What has to happen next for the rapture to occur? It is imminent, right? It is imminent, which would mean that Christ's return to set up this kingdom is seven years from today.
revelation. So these are the kind of questions that we need to ask ourselves tonight as we live each day in the glorious hope that we have in Christ. Pray that others.